Well, and as you take your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And as you turn there, let me just take a brief moment here to give you a couple of family updates that are very important to the life of our assembly here. There's a number of things going on out there in your midst. Uh, the first one of which I believe Dennis and Irina Moisiev, are you guys in the room back there? You've brought a very important person into church this morning. Dennis, who do you have? Say it again. Very good. Ruslan, okay. Little baby boy that was born to you guys on July the 1st. Independence Day baby. Guys, we are so thrilled for you. And uh, it's great to see uh, that little guy back there, Ruslan. I'm so grateful for him, for God's faithfulness to you and to your family. And it's wonderful to see you back and with him in tow. What a blessing that is. Um, you know, and, and moving from the beginning of life to the end of life, I also just want to very briefly make mention of the fact that our dear brother Lloyd Forrester passed away this past week very unexpectedly. And I know that a number of you saw the notice that went out about that this past week, but in case you did not see that, wanted to let you know of it so that you can be an encouragement to his family. No need to pray for Lloyd. Uh, he is much better off, and he's a very happy guy this morning. Lloyd always sat right down here in the front row with a biggest smile on his face. And so my heart is a little heavy this morning, uh, missing my front row anchor up here. Um, and I just want to acknowledge the fact that Lloyd has been a faithful brother. He was here last Friday at our congregational meeting and was in my prayer group. Last thing I heard from Lloyd was his prayer that the Lord would strengthen and establish this church, provide for it. And so it's with a great fondness that I remember our brother Lloyd. And if you knew him and would like to be part of the memorial service for him, there will be details that we will get to you as they come to us uh, Lloyd passed away, actually, while he was on a cruise with his family this last Monday evening. And so the family just docked back here in the States on Friday. And so they're going through the process of still getting home and working through the grief that is theirs. And so do be praying for them as they work through all of that. And uh, make sure that as you have an opportunity to encourage Sandy, Lloyd's wife, that you do so and demonstrate to her the true and genuine love of Christ in the way that we as a church family now come alongside her in her hour of need. Um, so things from the beginning of life to the end of life, and there's another one actually in the middle of life this morning. Uh, I've been told that uh, Zepha Williams and Mitch Roberts, are the two of you in the room here in the second service? Don't see them? No. Well, they were engaged to be married this week as well. And so very exciting news for them. Uh, you know, as a church family, we've got everything going on here. Birth, death, engagements. And I think that makes two out of two weeks here that we've had to announce an engagement, which means if you're in the room and you're single, you better watch out because it's going around. <laughs> so uh, lots of good, good things going on there. But just want to bring those updates to you all because I know that no matter which relationships you're a part of there, those things are bound to impact you in some way. And it's a joy for us to walk through life as believers together. Indeed, isn't that why Jesus put us here together so that we could be an encouragement to one another, a help to one another, and rejoice during those moments of life that call for rejoicing? Well, let's go ahead and dive off into our text here this morning. And I'll begin by telling you, speaking of major life events, that one of the best days of my life, apart from the day that I came to know Christ, obviously, was the day that I married my wife, Michelle. December 30th, 2006 was the date. That is a good day that will live in my memory for as long as I live. And you're all saying, well, I'm glad that that was one of the best days of your life, because if it wasn't, we'd have a really big problem. And you'd be right. But it is a good day for me. And, and I remember on that morning, my father-in-law coming up to me and saying the morning of our wedding with a twinkle in his eye, jokingly, he said, you know, wasn't there any way that you could have moved this wedding back 36 hours and get married in 2007? I mean, come on, son, you're stealing one of my dependents a day before the end of the tax year. And it wasn't until several years later when Emma rolled around that I realized just how important that actually was. <laughs> you see, having 
A dependent can be very helpful. But just as truly as it's helpful to have dependence, it is also helpful to know that at various points in our life, we are dependents. And it was helpful then for us to be dependent. I mean, who amongst us started out life in a condition of full independence? No, you see, we're all dependent at some point, and we need to recognize that dependency, which becomes important here as we open up this text this morning, because in this text, Jesus is going to call us to be a dependent church. Now, that's very significant because this is the final message of Christ to one of his churches. This is message number seven out of seven. Now, never fear. That does not mean that we are done with the book of Revelation. No, I'm going to be out of town next week. But when I come back in two weeks, we're going to have one more time together in this book where we will go back and look at all of the benefits that are given to the people of God who are faithful. And it's going to be kind of a grand finale of sorts as we look at the promises that God gives to everyone who overcomes and conquers. And so you're not going to want to miss that time in two weeks because I think it's going to be very encouraging to you and to us as a church in our walks. But as we've looked at these seven churches, we've seen different kinds of churches, have we not? We've seen good churches, we've seen bad churches, we've seen poor churches, we've seen persecuted churches, we've seen sick churches, we've even seen what Jesus called dead churches. But here, church number seven out of seven, we're going to find what we can only see as being a fake church. And to help you understand that, I would ask that you would go ahead and look with me at verse 20, because here is the image that Jesus gives to us about the church at Laodicea. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I am standing at the door, and I am knocking. See, the picture here is a picture of Jesus having been locked outside of his own church. And it's interesting to notice there that the verb tenses that Jesus uses when he says these things in verse 20 are both past tense mixed with a present tense. And so the right translation of that, the best translation, should read something like this. I have been standing out here for some time, and even now I am presently knocking. Now many people could look at that particular statement from Jesus and think, oh, poor Jesus, unable to get in the door. If only we would open it to him, then he would be able to do his work. As though our action has any bearing whatsoever upon his ability to exercise his power. See, friends, that interpretation could not be further from the truth. No, this from Jesus is not a statement of regrettable inability. No, it is a direct statement of condemnation upon the Laodicean church. Because here is a church that is so atrophied in their relationship to Jesus that he is pictured as having no place in their midst at all. They are so far away from a faith, a true faith in Christ, that he is on the outside looking in. The meaning is very clear, see, and this is what we have to understand. A church that does not depend on Christ is no church at all. Because if we depend upon ourselves, we may as well be pushing Jesus right on out the back door and locking it in his face. And friends, that kind of blasphemous behavior... It does not belong in the confines of a true church. See, to be a self-sufficient church that exists independently from Christ is to not be a church at all. Because as we know, relationship to Christ begins with dependency on Christ. And that's the reason why Jesus begins his message to the Laodiceans the way that he does. With that introduction, let's turn our attention now to verse 14. And here is his statement to this fake church. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. 
For after all, He is the Amen, we're told. That means He is the fulfillment of everything. He is the faithful and true witness. Everything finds its final fulfillment in the nature of who He is. You see, He is the summation of everything. That is who He is. But more than just being the final fulfillment of everything, look at what else He is. He's not just at the end. No, He's also at the beginning too. You see, as the Creator, He is the foundation of everything. And as the Savior, He is also the fulfillment of everything. And so we've got this picture of Jesus from beginning to end, standing in the place of being everything. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul had already written to the sister church of Colossae, which is just nine miles down the road from Laodicea, Paul said there, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn, highest ranked of all creation. For by Him all things were created. They were created through Him, and they were created for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is, therefore, the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus Christ might be preeminent. You see, when the Scriptures talk about Jesus being both the beginning and the end, you could say the Alpha and the Omega, the Amen, and the beginning of God's creation, what they're trying to communicate to us is that He is everything, and that apart from Him, we have nothing. And so the implication is clear for us as a church then. If He is everything, and since He is everything, we must now look to Him for anything. And that, my friends, becomes the final expectation that Jesus comes with to His church here and says, if you want to be a faithful church, you will be dependent on Me, for I am everything. And that is a critical message for us to understand here together now in our own context. That if we are to be a faithful church, we must be a dependent church. Let me show you how this played out in the Laodicean context. And then as we go today, we're going to be applying it here to our own context. All right, so let's start by looking at the concern that Jesus has for the Laodicean church. To sum it up, his concern for them is that they are not dependent upon him. They are dependent upon themselves. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are just lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you have said, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, that's the summary of his concern for these people. Let's just dive in and pick this apart. See, in verse 15, just like every other church, Jesus knows the works of this so-called church as well. And sadly, just like the church at Sardis, which we saw two weeks ago, he has got nothing good to say about the Laodicean church at all. In fact, quite the opposite. He says in the text, I am getting ready, I'm on the cusp of, I am just about to spit you out. You see that there in verse 16. Now, in the English text, this has been cleaned up for us just a little bit, see? But the word in the original language is really pretty graphic. It's a word that means to vomit or to spew forth, forceful, projectile kind of elimination. And every parent in the room now knows exactly what I'm talking about. See, we're not reading that into the text here. No, it's just what the word means, which leads us to a very significant interpretive question here this morning. I thought that true Christians were eternally secure. After all, isn't that what the rest of Scripture teaches me? That if once I'm in Christ, I'm in Christ forever and no one can pluck me out of His hand? Well, yes, that is what the rest of Scripture teaches. But if Jesus is coming here to this church saying, I'm about to spit you out, 
How could Jesus do that to a church? Well, that gets right down to the heart of the matter here. See, this so-called church, it's not really a church at all. Remember verse 20? Jesus is on the outside looking in. See, if Jesus isn't in a place, then even though these people may call themselves Christians, they are not of Christ. And Jesus says to them, I am nauseated by you, and I'm moments away from hurling you out of my presence. Which leads us then to have to ask this question, why was this church not of Christ? Well, Jesus answers that and explains it to us with a powerful image. Look at what he says. It's because you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. What does he mean when he says hot and cold there? It's key to understanding this text. So let's dig into it. You know, our first temptation here might be to assume that he's making a commentary on their spiritual warmth. Obviously, hot means that they are devoted to Christ and cold means that they're pagans and, and apart from Christ. Isn't that what it means? Well, that's actually not what the text means. And we know that because Jesus says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. And, and if you interpret this as a statement about their spiritual warmth towards himself, then that means that Jesus is wishing for one of his churches to be death, deathly cold. That doesn't make sense. That's clearly not the right interpretation here. See, there is a better understanding available to us, but it requires that we first see this text the way that the original audience would have received this text. What did this text mean to them? Because they are the ones that Jesus is talking to here in the text. So once we understand that, then we'll see the principle that Jesus is getting down to here in the imagery. See, to understand what's going on here, you've got to know that Laodicea was a city that existed in what's called the Lycus Valley. And there were two other major cities that all were there in the same valley. The city of Hierapolis was about six miles north from Laodicea. And the city of Colossae, which we know much about, was about nine miles due west of Laodicea. And all three of these towns existed there in proximity to one another. Now, you need to know some things about each of these towns. Let me go through this very quickly. You see, Hierapolis was famous, we know this, from its, for its impressive natural hot springs, massive mineral baths that can still be seen if you stand at Laodicea and look across the valley. You can see the mineral baths there in Hierapolis. It became famous for its hot waters that were useful medicinally for the purpose of healing and restoration. And see, that's what these people would have been thinking about. You see, hot water in their minds is equivalent with restorative water, healing kind of water. Meanwhile, Colossae, nine miles down the road, it was built right up against a mountainside where it emitted a gushing spring of natural cool water. The only place in the region to this day where you can find natural cold water, refreshing and pure. And that's the imagery behind this idea of being cold. It's not to be dead to Christ. It's the idea that you and your works are now refreshing and pure for me. But see, Laodicea, it had no water source at all. And if you go and visit there today, you will still find aqueducts that were built to pipe their water in. The only trouble was that by the time the hot water got down to them over the course of six miles, it had cooled down and became lukewarm. And it was laced with mineral deposits that made it undrinkable in large quantities. Similarly, when the cold water was piped in, by the time it made the journey, it had warmed to room temperature and would clog up the pipes with undrinkable sludge. The ancient pipes are filled with sludge to this day. That's what they've discovered. And, and the writers talk in multiple sources about the foul waters of the Laodiceans, which if you drink them, they're going to make you sick. What's the point in the imagery then? The water of the Laodiceans, because it was neither hot nor cold, was utterly useless for their consumption. That, my friends, is the point that Jesus is making here to this church. Uselessness. Let me explain it and illustrate it to you this way. I, in my house, have got lots of room for coffee. 
I've got a whole cabinet that's filled with coffee stuff. I know there's some similar coffee lovers here in the room this morning, and you'll appreciate what I'm explaining here. There is nothing better first thing in the morning than a cup or two, maybe three if it's a good day, of hot coffee. Why? Because it warms me up. It wakes me up. And so it's useful for my purposes to drink that, that cup of hot coffee. It's the first thing that I do when I wake up in the morning. I've got a place for that. But you know what? Cold coffee, as I have recently come to discover, is also most excellent here <laughs> in the midst of a hot St. Louis summer. Because there's nothing better than a wonderful cold brew straight out of my refrigerator poured over ice on a hot St. Louis summer afternoon. I've got lots of space for a cold coffee as well. But you know what I will not drink? Is a lukewarm room temperature cup of coffee. It is repulsive and disgusting and worthy of only being spit out because it tastes like spoiled creamer. See, I'm not going to drink a lukewarm cup of coffee. That is useless to my purposes. It is neither going to restore me and wake me up, nor is it going to refresh me and cool me down. It is utterly useless and frankly a little bit disgusting you see what's my point it's not I'm not trying to confess to you that I'm a coffee addict though that may be true what I'm trying to do is illustrate the fact that the idea here is the idea of usefulness and now that we understand that this imagery that would have immediately popped into these people's minds becomes clear see this is not a commentary on their spiritual heat no it's a commentary on their usefulness to Christ on the one hand their works aren't hot they're not restorative or healing to anybody on the other hand they're not cold either they're not refreshing and purifying to anyone their works aren't helpful to them to Jesus or to anybody else this is a worthless useless church that's the point of the imagery now that leads us to a final question. Why is it that Jesus sees them as being so very useless? Well, look with me at verse 17, and here's where we get right down to it. It's because they see themselves as being dependent on themselves rather than on Jesus Christ. They say, I'm rich. It's a present tense statement. Right now, I got everything I need. I have prospered. It's a past tense statement. It's because of what I've done for myself that I have become rich. And it's also a future tense statement. I am in need of nothing going forward. You see, those are statements that paint a portrait of a church that is entirely dependent upon themselves rather than depending upon the person of Jesus Christ. The reason why they were useless to Jesus is because they were not depending on Jesus and thereby they proved that they did not know anything of him at all. Because a true church must be a dependent church. A church that is self-sufficient, though, you see, it doesn't know anything of Christ. For friends, how is it that we come to Christ? It's in a spirit of dependency. And then how is it that we walk with Christ? It's by continuing to be dependent upon His work on our behalf and His power and His strength. So their smug self-satisfaction and their ability to provide for themselves says everything we need to know. See, this is a church that is, you could say, fat and happy. <laughs> Well, how did they get so rich, you might ask, and that's going to become important to our interpretation here in just a moment. Well, there were three main industries in Laodicea. It was a center for banking, a center for the textile industry, and it was a center for healing, primarily for eye infections. And it was the combination of these three industries that made the town fabulously wealthy, a fact that is well attested in antiquity. And unlike other churches in Revelation, this is a church that is filled up with the well-to-do. You look at those three industries and you might say it's a church that's filled with bankers and merchants and doctors and those wealthy people. Rather than depending on Christ for everything they needed, this professional-grade church has shoved him off to the side. He's on the outside, remember? And they are depending upon themselves. See, in the words of Christ, earlier in the Gospels, Jesus already told us, look, it is hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. Why? Because they're so used to looking to themselves for provision that they can't quite bring themselves to look to Jesus. And having the wealth, that's not the problem because the Lord often blesses people financially and it comes from Him. 
But the problem is when you begin to rely upon that wealth and those blessings instead of relying upon him. When you put yourself in center stage rather than seeing him in that place. See, you cannot be a follower of Christ and think much of yourself because salvation begins when you come to a place of dependency upon his work rather than your own. And the Christian life can only be lived according to his strength and never your own. And so if, if you, my friend, look around and you see yourself depending on yourself instead of Jesus, that is really a powerful statement about the nature of your relationship to Jesus. And here's the reason why. Only those who are ready to depend on Christ fully are those who know Christ truly and wholly. And that's the point that Jesus is making here to these, to these people. And that's the heart of his concern. They thought much of themselves. You see, their <laughs> reality in God's eyes was very different from their perception of themselves. Look at the second half of verse 17. They think, I'm rich. But Jesus says, not when I look at you. You don't realize that you are a pitiable wretch, poor, blind, and naked. That's who you are apart from Christ. You see, there's no way to have a relationship to him and be a faithful church if you don't recognize your need from him for everything. And my friends, I think that this is a very powerful message that we would do well to grapple with here in our wealthy American context. You see, our bank accounts are stocked. Our retirement accounts are well-funded for the most part. Our, our tables are overflowing with abundance and our houses are, are well-appointed. Our spare time, it's filled with beautiful people and wonderful things. And we, for the most part, live these beautiful and abundant lives. And, and we, too, in our comfortable context, may well struggle with this very false sense of security and independence where we say, yeah, Jesus is another blessing in my life, rather than recognizing that Jesus is the source of every blessing in your life. He is himself the foundational fundamental blessing and if you do not depend on him you have nothing and that is the reality that we have got to be willing to grapple with that apart from Christ we too are the most pitiful of wretches we are poor we are blind and we are naked spiritually speaking and therefore we must look to Christ and depend upon him for everything that's what Jesus is admonishing us to here if we're to be a faithful church no if we're to have any claim to being a church at all we've got to see ourselves as living walking being in full dependence upon the provision of Jesus Christ alone See, and that is the solution. That's where Jesus goes here in these next verses. He gives them some counsel. Okay, now he has assessed his concern for them and about them. And here he proceeds to counsel them. In verse 18, this is a statement that is now laced with irony. Jesus comes to these fat cats and he essentially puts on the hat of a financial advisor. You know, he could have given them a command here in this verse, but he doesn't do that. Look at the word that he uses here. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to counsel you now on what it is you really need to be seeking to buy. You think you're so very well off? Well, let me give you some advice. That's the word that he uses. That word there, counsel, means to advise or to consult with. And Jesus says, let me be your spiritual financial advisor for just a minute. Because I'll show you the, the, the balance of your account truly, and then I'm going to tell you what stocks you need to be investing in and buying that, oh, by the way, only I am actually selling. And so he goes on to give them this counsel here. He says, you need to be purchasing three things. And he uses images that correlate to the primary industries of their town, images that resonate with their industries. But each of them pointing these people to not be dependent on themselves any longer and to start being dependent upon him. Now watch what he does carefully here because it is brilliantly powerful. He starts by saying the first thing that you don't have that you need is gold. You think gold? I thought he was saying don't depend upon your wealth. Why is he telling them to buy gold? 
Well, it's not physical gold. Clearly, Jesus is saying here, you need to acquire something that is going to address your poverty, your spiritual poverty. It's why he says you need to buy gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, spiritually rich. That's his concern here for them. So what other text do you know of that talks about gold that is refined by fire? You sharp biblical scholars in our midst will immediately think of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, where spiritual gold is clearly defined for us. Where Peter says there, look, it's the genuineness of your faith that is proven to be more precious than purified gold. There it is. And in the end, that faith is going to result in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. See, it's the acquisition of faith in Christ that is the commodity that will make you rich and that you and I and these people should be pursuing with all of our hearts. Jesus says here, forget your cold, hard cash, you bankers in Laodicea, and stockpile faith instead, a commodity that can only come from the hand of Christ. And if He is here to give you faith, if He is selling, well then, you and I, we ought to be buying. That's what Jesus tells these people. Instead of your money, you need faith, and I'm here to offer it to you. That's his first point of counsel to them. But he goes on, and he says, in addition to this gold, this faith, you also need some white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, you people who are so satisfied with yourselves. That's what he's saying to these Laodiceans. See, the second industry in Laodicea that is well attested to in antiquity is the textile industry. Because back in their day, through centuries of genetic breeding, they had developed a very specific kind of wool that the ancient sources tell us was so black that it was almost violet and shiny in color, much like a, a satin in our modern day world. And they became world famous for their clothing and for their ability to produce the finest kind of cloth. And it's to these purveyors of the finest black ancient wool that Jesus says, come to me and instead acquire white garments. Forget your old black designer suits. You say, well, what is what does white garments stand for here? What, what does that mean? Well, we know because we've already seen this imagery deployed multiple times in the first three chapters of Revelation, have we not? It is a metaphor that speaks to the righteousness of Christ, a robe that only He can give to us that when we put it on and are clothed in the white robes of His righteousness, now we have the ability to stand before God free from shame. But as long as we're standing there in our old, own, filthy black rags characterized by sin, well, we may as well be standing before God, spiritually speaking, with nothing on. And Jesus says, if you're in that condition, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Instead, you need to put on the robes of white righteousness. Who does that come from? Jesus Christ alone. Only He is able to give faith. Only He is able to give righteousness. But then He goes on and He says one more thing. You people need to buy some ointment for your eyes because you're blind. Again, see, people from all over the ancient world would come to Laodicea to be healed from eye diseases. There was a particularly virulent, virulent form of conjunctivitis where Gunk would build up in your eyes and gradually rob you of your sight with a bacterial infection until finally your vision was permanently gone. And there was an ancient, famous Laodicean ophthalmologist who had contrived a, an ointment that could help correct this and overcome the infection. And Jesus essentially says to these world-famous eye doctors, you people who are so good at restoring others' sight, are blind yourselves spiritually. Ironically, you world-famous eye doctors should be coming to me rather than to yourselves to gain wisdom, insight, and discernment about the reality of who you are spiritually. 
Well, how does Christ give sight to those who are blind? Well, we know the answer to that. We've been studying it in the Gospel of John, haven't we? You see, the way that Jesus brings sight to our souls is to grant us the Holy Spirit, the one who now illuminates all things for us so that we can both see Christ truly and see ourselves correctly. That's the only true source of the, for those who are spiritually blind. So as we're seeing here in these verses, Jesus is calling these people to get three things. Faith, righteousness, illumination. Things, by the way, folks, that true believers automatically have and unbelievers do not. And that is very instructive here because when Jesus tells these people that they are pitiful wretches, poor, naked, and blind, what he's truly saying to them is that because you have relied upon yourself, because you have never come to me in dependence, you don't have the gold of faith. You don't have the, right, the white robes of righteousness and you do not have the eyesight to discern and be illuminated to the truth. Those are the things that they most needed. Again, folks, it drives us back to the principle that if you are self-reliant and not dependent on the person of Christ for life, then that is evidence that perhaps you do not know Christ. And that's the reason why we say this is a fake church. Some of you might say, well, isn't that a little harsh to make that assessment of them? Well, not according to Jesus, because look at verse 19. He goes on and he gives us a little bit of an illustration to confirm for us that he's not talking to a true church here. In verse 19, he says, look, those that I love, um, I reprove and I discipline. What's that mean? It means he acts as a loving father to those who are truly his. The Laodiceans knew nothing of his reproof or his discipline. He just told them, I am about to disown you. That is neither loving reproof nor is it discipline. See, Jesus says here, a good parent is going to be willing to reprove his child. That means I'm going to instruct them in what we know to be right. And a good parent is going to be willing to discipline as well. That means I'm going to be willing to bring consequences to bear for, for wrong. Positively, a parent instructs in what's right, and negatively, they give good reason to avoid what is wrong. A parent does both of those things because they love their child. But what a parent never does is to push their child out and disown them. See, a good parent is always going to be there, ready to admonish and reprove, yes, because they love their child, but they will do that even in the face of the gravest of offenses. The truth of these people's condition can be seen in this illustration. The fact that Jesus is preparing to vomit them out, to push them out of his presence, and to disown them is proof that they were never his kids to begin with. And it's for that reason that Jesus now says in verse 19, my final counsel to you is to get zealous, means to be earnest, to pursue, cling to it, and repent. See, these people lacking faith, lacking righteousness, lacking clear eyesight, they needed to be saved. And that's the reason why, as we get down to verse 20, Jesus says, I'm on the outside. I'm not, I'm not in that church. I'm on the outside looking in, knocking, begging you now to repent. Why? Because these people didn't see themselves in need of Christ. They saw themselves as being sufficient unto themselves. See, Jesus has given us a choice here between two alternative ways of thinking. On the one hand... You can rely upon yourself for everything. And in the process, you will prove that you never knew him to begin with. Folks, if you look at yourself and consistently think, well, I've got this, that's to deny the foundational reality of faith. Faith requires you to be willing to say, I don't got this. And if you think that you've got this, that's to undermine the reality of righteousness because the reality of receiving righteousness from Christ is that your own deeds were nothing better than, than filthy rags. And the person who, who looks to Jesus and can never see the reality of their own nakedness is still in their blindness. 
Instead, though, there's a second path that Jesus gives to us here. Repent, zealously cling to him, knowing that only he can give you faith, knowing that only he can provide you with righteousness, knowing that only he can restore your sight to you. And so now that we understand exactly the stakes of what Jesus is addressing here, let's go back and return to the image that we started with because that's the subject of his exhortation to us. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The opportunity is here and now. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. See, to rely upon your own self, friends, that's to lock him on the outside. But to see him with a spirit of full dependency as he's appealing us here to see him with, it is to find life-giving relationship established. He walks into your life, into this church, and takes up his residence within you. And more than that, he sits down and communes with you. It's the clearest picture possible of intimate relationship. You see, in our world, if I want to say to you that I am your friend, I will greet you with a handshake, maybe even a hug. But in their world, in the ancient world, if you wanted to to establish close relationship with someone, you didn't do it with a hug or a handshake. You did it by sitting down to dinner with somebody. And, And if you were invited into my home for the purpose of dinner, that means something significant about the reality of our relationship. And that's what Jesus is pointing to here. If you would just come and depend upon me for faith, righteousness, and eyesight, well then, I will come into your life and I will transform everything. I think the biggest mistake that people make here is interpreting the door that's being talked about as being the door to their own lives. No. You see, the door in this context is in reference to the door of a church, right? And so... It's not talking about your table here that he comes and shares with you in. No, it's his table. This is his house. It's his table. And he is the one who now provides everything that we need. And he does it in a way that demonstrates vibrant, loving relationship. That's what Jesus is offering here. You want to be useful to him? You want to be a real church? You want to see him in his rightful place, in his church? You want Christ to be to you as a loving father? Then come to him. Take what he is offering and depend upon him alone. And that is the point of his exhortation to us here. Open the door and I will provide you with the closest of relationships. That's what he's calling us to here as a church. And I think this morning, as we go to wrap up this text, there's a couple of specific points of application that we must make, both as individuals and as a church. So here's the first one to us as individuals. If you look at your life and you see a spirit of self-reliance, well, then you need to repent and earnestly seek after Christ because apart from Him, Despite any success, accolades, wealth that you may have accrued, when God looks at you, he sees a pitiful wretch, poor, blind, and naked, and you in the place of what you can furnish yourself, you desperately need the faith and righteousness and illumination that comes from truly looking to Christ and depending upon him. Friend, do not ever trust in yourself. Cling to Jesus instead. That's the point of what it means to be zealous and repent now. But this is not just a message to those who have never come to Christ in relationship to Him. No, it's also a message that is very fitting for us as individuals to recognize as those who have already come to Christ in dependence. Because so often I fear that it is very easy for us to be saved and to look to Christ to provide our salvation and say, I was dependent on you back there, but now I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. And I'm going to walk in dependency upon myself, provide myself with all the things that I need and, and conduct my Christian walk according to the power of my own strength. Lord, friend, if, if you needed Christ as Lord to get you in the door, how much more do you need Him as your Lord to give you the strength to conduct your walk? 
You see, dependency on Christ is not just true at the moment of salvation. It's also a truth that you must know and cling to every moment of your walk with Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why Jesus is saying here, we've got to be a church that is marked by our dependency on Christ. And so may we truly remember that and walk in dependency on Him, even as we came to Him. But see, that's the application for us as individuals. There's another application for us as a church as well. A very practical, very direct application of this text that we would do well to remember, particularly given the situation that we're in. See, as a church, if Christ was sufficient to give us the faith and the righteousness and all of the sight that we needed to be called into this church, if He is truly here in our midst, sitting down at a table that He has set before us, do you actually think that He is going to let us go hungry now? I mean, really, how bizarre would it be if I invited you over to my home for dinner and you pulled up and came in the front door and I greeted you and we all sat down to share a meal together and we prayed for the meal after having washed our hands and we're all ready and... I said, well, I hope you enjoy this very fine conversation that I have presented before you here this evening. You'd be looking at me saying, hey, where's the beef, buddy? <laughs> right? Where, where's the meat? Where's the food? You've got to provide for me. This is your house after all. And if I did not provide you with anything there at that table, you'd be walking away and you'd be saying, boy, that was weird. And I'm hungry. And you'd go to Chick-fil-A or something. See, when you go into somebody's house and you sit down at their table to share a meal with them, it's obvious that they are going to provide everything that you need. Friend, here in our midst, Jesus Christ is present. He has placed Himself here in our midst. He's not on the outside knocking, looking to get in. No, He is here in our presence now because He has invaded our hearts. He has now come into us, as this text says. And since He has now come into us, do you not think that He is going to put everything on the table that we as a church might possibly need? Well, of course he is going to do that. That's what a good host does. And Jesus is the perfect host. And that comes with a very powerful implication for us to trust in here together now. You see, we're in a situation as a church where we're asking the Lord to provide for our needs. And yet I know in some of our hearts we might be looking at that need thinking, well, how is God going to do that? How is He going to provide for our needs? And we might be a little bothered and a little concerned about what this is going to look like. But, but here's the truth of what this text is telling us right now. Jesus will provide our every need. You say, how can you be so confident in that? Because He already has provided for our every need, you see? He has done that both spiritually and He has done that physically. In every possible way, Jesus loves this church more than you and I ever could. And He is going to provide for all of our needs. Now, we might not necessarily know what that provision is going to look like yet. And perhaps it's not the kind of provision that we, perhaps, from our perspective, might prefer. But the reality is Jesus knows and He is rich. And He is capable of providing us with everything we could ever possibly imaginably need. And I know that because He's already done it. Second Peter 1 tells us that He has already given to us everything that we need for life and godliness. And therefore, as a church, are we going to be faithful to look to the future in full dependency upon Him? That is what we're being called to right here in this text. We don't need to worry about how Jesus is going to provide for us. He already has, for His name is the Great Provider. To use the Old Testament name for God, He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And so now it falls to us to walk in dependency upon Him. Because as we've seen here, friends, a self-reliant church is a worthless, lukewarm kind of church. To depend upon ourselves is to act as though we were the amen and the beginning of creation. 
And such blasphemy has no place in the church of the living Christ. For he alone is the true and faithful witness to whom we now look. So my friends, may we always remember both as individuals and as a church body that we must have a heart of full dependency upon Christ to provide for our every need, for indeed he has already proven himself capable of doing just that. And if we will, well, here's his promise to us in verses 21 through 22. Let's close with this. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So then, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we do thank you for the message of your word that has been granted to us. We have learned much this summer about what your kind of church looks like. And here in this final message to the churches, Father, may we see ourselves as being fully dependent upon you for everything. You alone can give us faith, righteousness, spiritual sight. You alone can sustain us and empower us. You alone will provide for us. So in every way, may we be a church that is both hot and cold. May the fruit of our works be spiritual restoration and healing. May the fruit of our works be both refreshing and purifying. And when you look at us, may you never have to say they are lukewarm because they look unto themselves. May we always look to you for everything that is before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close by reading from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Do go ahead and stand together with me, and we'll conclude with these words. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Go in grace this week.